It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. We began on Monday with the first episode in a series that I'm going to be going uh, through over the next seven weeks. And it's called Spiritual Lessons uh, from Alfred the Great. And at first, that seems rather strange. I mean, why would Alfred the Great be our, uh, be our source? And it's just a template. It's just a historical context to draw out some amazing spiritual truths. Because what was going on in the days of Alfred, which he is going to come into his kingdom in 872 AD. It's sort of an obscure time in the middle of the uh, Middle Ages, the Dark Ages uh, of history. And a lot of us don't quite know what to do with that time period. And it's somewhat obscure and it feels dark. You know, when we call it the Dark Ages, it sort of feels dark. And if you ever study like Anglo-Saxon things or Viking things, it's rather bloody and, you know, it's not that pleasant. And when you look at J.R.R. Tolkien's works, uh, like The Hobbits and The Lord of the Rings, that's actually sort of a picture of that time. In fact, the term you're going to hear today, I'm going to use the term ring giver. Sounds very similar to something. Uh, and then Middle Earth is a term that was commonly used back then to describe the territories in between uh, in the island of Britannia. So it's just fascinating to sort of see how this lore, uh, this medieval lore gets sort of woven into things that you guys are familiar with. But it's real people. We're dealing with real history. And if you were a Christian in this day and age, one of the questions would be, what would you do? And that's the way, when I go into World War II and I stick myself in Germany, and I'm Eric Ludi with the beliefs I have, and I have a ruler known as Adolf Hitler. And it was not like optional. It's not like they had a conscientious objector option in the military. It's like, I just don't feel in my conscience that I can hold a gun and I can go into this battle and fight for an evil man for an evil purpose. I just don't feel in my conscience I can do that. You'd just be killed. In fact, the moment they sensed a betrayal in your soul that you were not on, on board, they would take you privately away. They would just catch you in the night and kill you. They, Hitler's agenda was to eliminate something known as martyrdom. He didn't want anyone being martyred. He just wanted them exterminated. So Eric Ludi is going to die quickly in World War II. <laughs> That's the way I feel. As I look at the landscape, it's like, wow, this is intense. And so one of my favorite things to do is stick myself in some of the challenging moments in history and then just sort of wind myself up and say, okay, Eric, now live. And I, I want to know, what would I do? Because my time period is very different than Alfred's in a lot of regards. You know, the, the traditions and the culture is very different in the Middle Ages than it is in 2021 North America, especially Windsor, Colorado, you know, sort of this peaceful haven in the midst of America. And when I, I'm not, I don't live in World War II, and I'm not in Germany, I'm not in Great Britain, I'm not in Russia. And yet, I am being wound up by the Spirit of God and set in motion in my time period. And I want to know, God, how do I behave now? If I were to read back on this ancient time period called 2021, and we were to say, well, what was that like? Oh, what an interesting period of history. And we were to say, what would have been the model of living now? If we were like a thousand years in the future looking back, and we were to say, this is what the heroes in 2021 would have done. 
What is that? I want to know what that is. And technically, I want to live that out. And so that's sort of what this series is, because we are uh, a long time into the future from 872 AD, when Alfred is going to stake claim to his throne. And yet the, the challenges that he faced are not altogether different than ours. They just come in different clothing, with different noises and different smells. They eat different foods. They have a different language. But it's the same humanity that is marked by sin. And as a result, the decisions that are going to be made in 872 AD are actually apropos to us. And that's why I like to do this. That's what happened in World War II. When you start unpacking World War II, wow, it sticks you in the middle of something. It's not actually that long ago. And we're related to people that were right smack in the middle. We've had conversation with people that were in the middle of that. Most of us haven't talked with someone that actually like stood by Alfred in the shield wall. Okay, it's a little further back and it feels very ancient and very distant. So this message is called The Behavior of Royalty. And if I could sort of say it, when I'm doing a series, there's sometimes some foundational things I need to put into place. And this is going to be more of one of the foundational episodes in the series. It's not going to go into as much of the actual history of what is taking place in Alfred's life as much as to create a backdrop so that we can reason together through the series, okay? But I think you'll really enjoy it. It's called, uh, this idea of the behavior of royalty, that statement is actually going to come from a statement of the prophet Samuel when he is speaking uh, to the nation of Israel. So this book, The White Horse King, is the one that really stirred me up. So I have a, a good friend named Matt Powell, and he knows uh, that the impact of the book, The Scottish Chiefs, was very significant in my life. Uh, in fact, it's a very interesting story in Ludi history that I read this book, The Scottish Chiefs, and I'm greatly impacted by it. I'd never seen a picture of manhood like I was going to in the life of William Wallace. It's a book written in 1810, and it is a masterpiece. It really is. And I'd never seen a picture of femininity like I'm going to see in Lady Helen in that book. It is beautiful. It is profound. It is moving. And the third chapter in the book, The Scottish Chiefs, is called Ellerslie. And so that'll give you a whole new depth of understanding of what this environment is and what it was built for. It was built to, in a sense, be a house for true masculinity and true femininity. And the way that Ellerslie, the estate at Ellerslie, is going to be described is with the terminology from Scripture in Job chapter 29. And so you understand even the, the, the number 29 becomes very, very important in our world, because Job in Job chapter 29 is going to be a picture of a man. I mean, you want to, Proverbs 31, you know, women are always like, oh, there's our, there's our chapter, even though some women aren't really excited to have that chapter. But then men, oh, do we have a chapter? Uh, Job chapter 29. It is the most manly chapter possibly in the entire Bible. It is so powerful, okay? He is going to rescue the weak and the orphan, the widow that is in distress. He is going to break the jaws of the evil one and, and, and tear the, the prey from his teeth. It's like, whoa! It's, it's a very impressive chapter. It's ultimately a picture of Jesus. And this is his, the great rescuer that is going to come and rescue us. And so this picture of strength and grandeur is going to so impact me. And so when Matt sends me this book, it was just, uh, I think he just texted it to me. He says, hey, you know, I don't know if I've ever recommended this to you, but uh, the way 
that Scottish Chiefs impacted you, this impacted me. Uh-oh, now I have to read it. I don't have a lot of spare time, but now I have to read it. And it actually is going to spawn this whole summer training. I'm so moved by it. I mean, I was surprised because it's more of an intellectual, uh, it's almost like it was a doctoral thesis for this guy. So it's, it's not just like the novel-esque sort of form of writing, but it greatly impacted me. And so I would, I would definitely encourage uh, you to uh, dig into this book when you have time. It might be hard when you're at Ellerslie to find that time. So here's our guy, King Alfred of Wessex, uh, also known in history as Alfred the Great. That name isn't going to come until around the 1400s or the 15th century. And so obviously he's not doing what he's doing, having everyone around him go, hey, you're great. He actually feels like a failure for a good portion of his entire life. In other words, this guy has everything against him. And yet, as we look back, we're going to see a man who stood against the odds and did something that most of us would say, that's impossible. So there's a map of Britannia at the time, and it's, it's not really including a lot of the northern section of Scotland in it, but you're going to at least see uh, what was known as uh, Britannia, uh, in the reign of Alfred the Great. And that blue section down below, which if you were here on Monday, which is most of you, that is the territory over which Alfred is going to inherit. Uh, now, he was the fifth son. And, and so as a result, you know what's going to have to happen in his life to become king? His dad's going to have to die. Ethel Wolf, do you remember that guy? Ethel Wolf, isn't that just a great name? Noble Wolf was the guy, that's what his name meant. And then his four older brothers are all going to have to die. That's a pretty rough thing. When, and so how old was he? He was, uh, what, 23 when he came into his kingdom and his entire family. His mom dies when he's like four or five. And uh, his dad's going to die, I don't know, when he's like 15 or 16. And somehow this guy, without a mom and without a dad, is going to grow up to be one of the most incredible pictures of manhood. How does that work? And all his older brothers are going to die, and the whole nation falls on his shoulders at a young age. That's pretty remarkable. The, I, I, was, I actually didn't finish my sentence in, on Monday when I said the average age, I don't know if any of you were bothered by this, I said the average age in the Middle Ages, the average lifespan, and then I got distracted and I never finished my sentence, <laughs> was 32 years old. 32 years old. I think that's why we feel sort of a darkness <laughs> over that time. It was like death was very common. And so when Alfred lives to be 50, he's like an old man. <laughs> that is remarkable. But obviously, hygienic standards and medical uh, things that we take for granted, you know, because early uh, biblical times, you have, you know, Methuselah living 969 years. And then as you progress, now we're, you know, we live, what? 70 to 80, and that would be pretty normal. Uh, and you know, if you live into the 90s, it's not a shocker. If you live into the 100s, whoa, that's weird. If you live into the 120s, you are very strange, right? But that's sort of the average time. Back then, sort of like the 120 might have been Alfred at 50. So it's pretty extraordinary uh, that 32, his, his mom lived till 40, and that's a pretty unusual thing in and of itself. So this is what I want to build on today, is this idea of royalty or kingship. There is a craving within us. First of all, one of the things Paul's going to explain to us is that we are always going to be ruled. 
we're either going to be ruled by God or we're going to be ruled by sin. And so when the devil is attempting to dupe us into thinking you could be God, in a sense he's saying you could be king, you could be ruler of your own life, it's, it's a lie because we are designed to be ruled. And so as a result, it's, a, it's an interesting craving in the makeup of humanity because the Israelites have it good. They have God as their judge. They have God as their ruler. They have God as their king, if you want to use that term for it. God is the superintendent of all that is Israel. So he is going to sponsor this nation. So all the way from Abraham, and then of course you have this, uh, you know, Abraham uh, unto uh, Isaac, and then Isaac unto Jacob, and then Jacob is going to have 12 sons. And those 12 sons are going to end up, because of Joseph, in Egypt. I shouldn't say because of Joseph. They're going to be spared and find great land in Goshen because of Joseph. It sounded like Joseph was responsible for uh, bringing him into captivity, but he wasn't. He was the one responsible for saving him. But then the Pharaoh is going to die, and a new Pharaoh is going to come in that doesn't really remember Joseph. And so as a result, they're going to be enslaved. And this is a rather rough stretch, but God is proving and training a people. And then Moses is going to come in and be a deliverer to them. And we know these stories, right? But God is beginning to sponsor the beginning of a nation. And so when the, there's a giving of a law, there is a form of government that is actually now being laid on top of this nation, but without a king. You're going to notice that the original form of government that God is going to sponsor does not have a king in it. Every single nation surrounding has a king. Well, who is the king of this nation? And God looks down and says, it's me. But the challenge that many of us face, just like the Israelites, is we look around and we feel abnormal. We don't want to be different. The term in Scripture is holy. We want to be like other nations, like other people. We don't want to be the odd duck. So if any of you were homeschooled, you know this feeling. And, oh, you appreciate the fact that you're homeschooled. There's two sides of you. They argue, sort of like the demon and the angel on the shoulder. It's like you're so privileged to be homeschooled, and you tell yourself that. And then there's this other side that is like, this is so miserable because I look funny. And I, anytime someone asks me this question, I, you know, I just sort of want to come up with it. You know, it's like, oh, hey, you know, look, there's a duck. You, know, you want to throw them off. Throw them off your homeschool scent. And as a result, when you're homeschooled, you want to almost make up for it somehow by like studying the culture and becoming knowledgeable about it. So if you get into conversation, you don't sound like a homeschooler because homeschoolers are somewhat ignorant about things that everyone else is. I am describing for you Israel right now. You know that when you are set apart and you are given a heritage that is stronger and better, you would think that you would cherish it. But there is a propensity inside of all of us to want to be normal. We don't want to be set apart. We want to be normal. We want to fit in. We want to be liked by the surrounding nations. The nations have cool dress. I guarantee you, in this time period, there was makeup, there was clothing, there was hairstyles, there was military, ex like they have uh, soldiers and they have order of, of ranks. They have all these things, and they come in their... their, their uh, their outfits, their war outfits, their plumes on top of their head. And it's like, that is so cool. That is so cool. And they look around at these 
Israelites and were like, come on, guys, let's get our act together. And you know what they craved? They craved a king. Isn't that a strange thing that they have God as their king? And how does God work as a king? He wins every battle. Think about Jericho. God is going to give them exact things to do. He says, if you do this, the walls are going to crumble. I will give them into your hands. You obey me, and this is the outcome. And if they do, we know what's going to happen. God's going to win every time, and it's supernatural. God is going to do supernatural things for his people. Do you appreciate God as your king? But it's strange. Everyone wants a king. We want, we want something earthly. And that's exactly what's going to happen in Israel. They are going to cry out for a king. They are tired of just having God as their king. They feel abnormal. They feel strange. So in 1 Samuel 12, 17, this is Samuel, and he says, Your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking a king for yourselves. Isn't that strange? Because we look at the history of the kings of, of Judah, and we're like, but isn't that a good thing? It is to the degree that it is going to represent the heart and the mind of the true king. However, the idea itself is an affront to God, because God wants to be our king. Now think about what's going to happen in global history. The Judean line of kings is going to end, but God is going to fulfill his prophecy that of the seed of David, it will not uh, cease to sit upon the throne. Who's of the seed of David? Jesus is. God is once again our king. God is going to claim that space, but he's going to have to walk through a lot of history with his people. And kings are a part of this world. Josephus, listen to this statement, Josephus was a historian that lived in the time of Jesus. Then Samuel called the people together to the city Mizpah and spoke to them in the words following, which he said he was to speak by the command of God, that when he had granted them a state of liberty and brought their enemies into subjection, they were become unmindful of his benefits and rejected God that he should not be their king, as not considering that it would be most for their advantage to be presided over by the best of beings, for God is the best of beings. And they chose to have a man for their king instead. I just want to allow that to sort of set on your soul too, because we have a tendency to get uncomfortable with the privileges that God has given us too. But you can have me. You could be in my presence. <laughs> and we're immediately like, but God, that's not enough. So, that's what I want to bring out in this, is to recognize that even though we're going to be talking about a king, I want us to remember what it is meant to be a picture of, is that ultimately a king that is going to be successful in this life, like David, David is going to be a great king. There's going to be other great kings. Asa was a good king. Hezekiah was a good king. Jehoshaphat was a good king. Josiah was a good king. Why? There is a quality to them that is very, very important because they are taking a position that actually is a godly position. And so no man really wants to touch that unless God is anointing them to do it. Unless God is inviting them into that position, boy, that's the anointed position. That's a very, very uh, sacred thing. And so how a man handles this position is of great importance. How you handle the territory that you have been assigned 
is very, very important. When you stand up within your life, even under the authority of Christ, to actually begin administering the word of God, to begin living out in the name of Jesus, you are touching sacred territory. You are representing the king of kings. Don't do that lightly. 1 Samuel 10.25, Then Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty. Isn't that just a fascinating statement? So he is going to explain to the people the behavior of royalty and wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. So in this description of royalty, there's going to be positive things and negative things. There are positives in having a king, and that's what the Israelites were craving. But there's also some liabilities that come with it. The walk of the king. So throughout the story of the kings and chronicles in the Old Testament, you're going to see this phrase repeated. And it's like, as David walked. And so he did not walk as a king as David has, had walked. And so it's fascinating just to call it the walk of the king. That There seems to be a right way to walk and an incorrect way to walk, right? And so as a result, there was a right way, and David seemed to do it. Saul didn't. He was rejected. He walked incorrectly in that sacred space of kingship. He did not handle the trust, the anointing properly. And as a result, a curse came upon him instead of a blessing. He's dealing with something very, very holy and sacred, and he mishandled it. And what's interesting is because if you think through the story of David, which God seems to take a great deal of time unearthing and exposing to all of us so you do not miss it, he's one of, out of all the texts of Scripture, you, probably other than like Jesus himself, you spend more time on David than maybe anyone else. It's a massive amount of territory in Scripture that is going to be covered on this one man. Why? He's a study in how to handle a sacred trust. Now, here's what's interesting. Most of us, when we think about it, are like, didn't he blow it? Saul blew it, and he was rejected. Why is it that David blew it, and he wasn't? That's a really good question. That's one part of what I'm going to be addressing. 1 Kings 9, 4 through 7. Now, if you walk before me as your father David walked, in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded you. And if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. So now we have Solomon, the son of David. And we have this, if you walk as David walked. Now some of us could be like, but that was imperfect. But God seems to be bragging about it. If you walk as David walked, then I will establish your kingdom. But if you don't walk as David walked, I don't have that piece here, uh, things are going to go very bad. Oh, here it is. But if you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and this house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And ironically, God's going to do exactly as he speaks. Remember how we talked about uh, faith yesterday when we were in class? 
You see, God is always going to keep his word, and that is exactly what's going to happen here. They will turn away from the way of God. They will not walk as David walked, and God will cut them off. And they were a byword and a proverb to all the surrounding nations. And then God, after 70 years, will bring them back. God is a restorative God. He's a redemptive God. However, he does mean what he says. How did David walk? Now, this is, could be very, very important for your soul to just grip this. It wasn't with perfect obedience, but with humble obedience. So it's a hard thing to sometimes grasp, but there was a problem with Saul. Saul was arrogant and proud. And the only time he ever showed sorrow was when he was caught and when he was threatened to lose something. And then suddenly he's like, oh, I'm just so sorry. I don't know if you've, if you've ever been a parent you can tell the difference between a child who is mournful over their sin because they're caught and they're going to get a discipline and one that is truly broken and repentant over their sin. David was a, is described as a man after God's own heart. He had a quality that is actually going to be a key quality in his kingship, and that is humility. He genuinely wants to please God. And when he is corrected, he breaks. He repents. He truly humbles himself, not to just get God's favor back, but to say, God, you are right. And whatever you need to do, you can do because I trust you. I'd rather fall into the hands of God than into the hands of men. My, here's a statement I've said a lot of times. I used to travel around the world and talk about uh, parenting. Not because I was trying to teach people to parent, but as a child. And I'm saying this is from a child's vantage point. So when we first started speaking, we were young. and our young, I was in my young 20s. And I wanted to encourage parents of how they could communicate to their kids. I was like this bridge communicator. And one of the things I said is my parents were perfect parents. I'd let that sit for a while. And everyone feels like convicted over the fact that they're not, right? And then I explained what I meant by that. Perfect, that is, in responding to their imperfections. You know, that there is a, a way that you could respond to your imperfections that is very wrong, which is to self-justify, to excuse yourself, to get mad at people for even finding your imperfections. And there's another way, and that is to say, you're, that was wrong. I shouldn't have done it that way. Boy, I, I have really blown this thing called parenting. I, my parents <laughs> said that quite a bit. I really have messed up, Eric. In other words, they were perfect in, their, in responding to their imperfections. Isn't that just a fascinating statement? We are not called to just be perfect, even though we are, but perfect, in a sense, to us is going to mean how we respond to when we realize our imperfect. And when we humble ourselves, and we are broken, and we are contrite, it is pleasing to God. And this is the Davidic model. So I'm going to give you a contrast. Hanan, the proud king. So this man is going to do it the wrong way. Now, there's all sorts of great illustrations of that in Scripture, of kings doing it the wrong way. I, I, you're not short on coming up with illustrations of that in Scripture. Nebuchadnezzar is one of those great ones. Herod, remember, he's like thinking, someone says, you look like a god, and he's like, hmm, that's a, I sort of feel like one. And then he's going to be uh, cut down. In other words, there's a lot of great illustrations of doing it wrong. This is just one that has always stood out to me. Hanan. 2 Samuel 10, it happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. 
Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. So Nahash and David had had a decent relationship, and Nahash had showed kindness to David. So David's like, hey, you know what? We're going to start out this reign of Hanan properly, and I'm going to give him gifts. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father, and David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanan, their lord, Do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? Therefore Hanan took David's servants, shaved off half their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. When they told David, he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. When the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, the people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers from the king of Makkah, 1,000 men, and from Ishtob, 12,000 men. Okay, so Hanan is going to realize he really blew it here. Okay, David actually meant good, but Hanan is going to do bad. He's going to shave beards, cut off backsides of clothing. You know, it's not pretty, right? Now, what do you do when you recognize you're repulsive? Your behavior was repulsive in the eyes of David. What would be wise right now if you're a good king? If you're a good king, I mean, you can make a mistake. David will be merciful. But what you don't want to do is self-justify. And that's exactly what he's doing. His arrogance and his pride won't allow him to humble himself So he actually hires a whole bunch of armies to come and fight David, which then leads to further disaster for Hanan. Okay, this is just a bad maneuver, guys. If you are ever entrusted with a territory and you make a mistake, humble yourself. The kryptonite of kings. So for those of you that are unfamiliar with the the legendary stories of Superman, kryptonite is his one weakness. This guy is so powerful, but right, but he has a kryptonite. And so if Lex Luthor can just get this kryptonite near him, then he loses all his powers, right? There is something about power. When it comes from the earthly sense, earthly power always comes with a kryptonite. It's just an interesting statement, okay? With power comes great susceptibility. I feel like I'm playing upon all sorts of movie themes here. You see, it's not just that with Great power comes great responsibility, it does, but with power comes great susceptibility. This has been proven throughout history. Watch the life of Saul. Saul is actually a very humble man, if you read the story, very humble. When he is being chosen by Lot in Israel, he already knew he was going to be king because Samuel told him, and then they're choosing Lot's, and guess who it's going to come on? Saul. It says he was hiding in the stuff. He didn't want to be king. He didn't feel he was worthy to be king. And he actually, even in description, Josephus' descriptions of Saul was an extremely humble man. Well, that doesn't match our story of Saul as his life unfolds. He's an extremely arrogant, proud man who refuses to yield up his throne. And to correct his error, he tries to kill David instead of submitting to the fact that God is right and his behavior was wrong. Okay, so Saul is going to show that the power that comes upon his shoulders is going to corrupt him instead of make him stronger. You're going to see David handle that power, that authority, completely different. Yes, David is going to make mistakes. But then even when he, in his mistakes, 
you're going to see him respond to it different than Hanan responds. He's not going to hire a whole bunch of self-justification and stand against God and say, God, I'm right, you're wrong. Instead, he's going to be broken before God and say, God, you do what you need to do to correct this, whatever that is. I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve your favor. This was wrong behavior. It's true repentance. Beautiful. So look at this. The Amalekites have power. They really do. They have an army. They have strength. But they have a chink in their armor, covetousness. The Philistines have power, but they have a chink, pride. The Ammonites have power, the chink, control. The Moabites have power, but the chink, fear and superstition. And so as a result, you're going to recognize that throughout history, you're going to see these weaknesses actually be their downfall because they put their confidence in the power of this earth. They number their armies and they lean and they have faith in their own strength and their chariots and their horses. You see, what a king of Israel cannot do is do exactly as they do. And yet what you're going to see the kings of Israel and then Israel and Judah begin to do is to adopt the ways of the Amalekites in battle, to adopt the ways of the Philistines. And as a result, those chinks come with them. And it becomes a vulnerability, and that becomes the breakdown of Israel. I'm going to introduce you to the chinkless kingdom. I'm sort of having to make up a word there. Sounds like a kind of gum, doesn't it? Chinkless. Uh, but the chinkless kingdom is the kingdom of heaven. It is built completely different and was without a chink. You know that if the kings of Israel live according to God's pattern, they live in purity, they live in humility, they live in accordance with his law, did you know that the enemy cannot touch them? It's called fortification. They are walled in. And it doesn't come from how many troops you have. It doesn't come from how many stallions you have, how many sword bearers you have, how many chariots you can number. It has nothing to do with that. Your chinklessness actually has everything to do with your obedience, with your submission, your faith, your confidence in his ruling quality his ruling ability. Now, as I'm saying this, you may be thinking back to ancient times instead of thinking about your own soul. But what I'm introducing you to is actually how it works today as well. There's a reason why these stories are given in the Old Testament, and it's to create a parallel with the kingdom of heaven that we have entered into. That there is the opportunity for a chinkless kingdom where the enemy cannot access us if we walk in purity and obedience. But when we try and go the way of the Amalekites and the Ammonites and the Amorites and the Moabites, the Philistines, when we try and emulate because we want to be like them, we want to have the plume, we want to have the makeup, we want to have the look or the walk or the swagger. Whatever it is, we want what they have because it just looks so much better than our holiness. We invite the chink. And as a result, the devil will play it against us. And that's the demise of every king of Israel and Judah throughout the ages. The kryptonite of Israel. So technically, you should say, well, Israel doesn't have a kryptonite. But it still does. And you know what it is? The same one we have. Because we have God Almighty as our fortress, as our defender. It's like, who can break through that? Could you imagine? It's like, there is no arrow, there is no sword that can cut through it. 
we have literally the ultimate shield. It's like thousands of feet thick of solid diamond. It is the most impermeable barrier that anyone could ever have, and we have it. So then what's our chink? What's the chink or the kryptonite of Israel? They snub their holiness, which is their great defense. It's their otherness. It's the fact that they have allowed God to set them apart and make them look different. They snub their holiness and want to be like the nations around them. By the way, I'm not just making this up saying this is my guess. This is what God himself says. Deuteronomy 17. When you come to the land which the Lord your God has given you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So God even knows what's coming. But he shall not multiply horses for himself nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses for the Lord God the Lord has said to you you shall not return that way again neither shall he multiply wives for himself isn't that interesting because we can see that happen multiple times too lest his heart turn away nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself this is what the other nations do so even if you do ask for a king which is an affront to God That king will come from your brothers, and this is how he must behave. There's actually a way that a king is supposed to behave. There's the behavior of royalty. 2 Kings 17, 15. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers. And his testimonies, which he had testified against them, they followed idols, became idolaters, and went after the nations who were all around them, concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. God's power is the only power without a chink. It's not an interesting statement to think that if you rest in God's power, there is no fiery arrow that can break through. If you rest, but so it's like, okay, how do I rest in God's power? You have to humble yourself. You have to let go of all other confidences. You can't try and be like the Amalekites and still rest in God's power. You have to be other than. You have to set yourself apart and say, God, I'm willing to do it your way. What is your way? Well, back in the Old Testament, they had law. They had commands. They had a very specific order to that culture. It was a culture that is actually going to reveal an invisible culture, which we are now walking in. It's called the kingdom of heaven. And what was in the natural realm then is revealed in the supernatural realm in and through us. We are actually revelatory devices to show the kingdom of heaven, the invisible qualities of God. That's a, it's an extraordinary thought, but there's a pattern that is taking place, and if we stand in that place of obedience, of purity of heart, of submission and humility, then there is a preservation of our life. The Teflon king. Teflon's very tough material, by the way. The one who rests in the purity, holiness, and righteousness of God's manner and doesn't take the bait and attempt to emulate the kings of surrounding nations. All right, so I want you to personalize this. We are talking about kings, and yes, we are going to be talking about Alfred the Great, who was a great king. What he is going to do is actually going to emulate great kingship. However, what is the benefit for us? If it's just historical knowledge, eh, I really don't care about that as far as it has no practical value to us. But if we could recognize that God is establishing his kingdom, 
The kingdom of God is within you. Whoa, well, that's an interesting statement. How does that work? The throne of God, the temple of God in the Old Testament has suddenly whew, moved into you. You are actually a mobile temple. The Holy of Holies is now inside of you, the very dwelling place of God. And you know what also that dwelling place is? If you, if you remember Isaiah 6, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. Where is the temple? It's right where the throne is. What is the throne? It's like that Ark of Covenant, the mercy seat. That Holy of Holies is not just the temple of God, it's the throne room of God. That's the throne room of grace. It's a king's dwelling. Where is that now? Uh, right here? This is the kingdom. It's a mobile version of it. Together we represent the kingdom of God. This is where he dwells. He dwells in us as individuals and us corporately. He takes his throne right here and we submit. And then we are charged with keeping the territory of his kingdom, which right now, these hands, these eyes, this mouth, this mind, this heart, this is the territory of, of the king. And we are responsible, just as David was responsible, just as Josiah was responsible for staking claim for God's purposes in this body. And then when we get territory, like say Eric gets married and God says, now you're over a marriage. Gulp. That's right. Now I stake claim as a good ruler, as a good leader over that. What if I get kids? Oh, now that's my territory. What if I'm entrusted with a church? What if I'm entrusted with a ministry? I am responsible before God to handle this sacred territory of leadership the way God has prescribed, with holy trembling, because there's a right way to do it and a wrong way. Others may, you cannot. So there is a poem that I'm about to read, this isn't it, uh, from a man named G.D. Watson. And it's a very, very important poem. It was actually not a poem. It's a writing. But it's very, very important in my life. And I used to keep it. I had a sheet of paper that it was written on. It was actually a poor uh, photocopy, too, of it. So it was like sort of uh, faded, even when I first got it. And I had it folded. It was in the front of my Bible. And all during my formative years, in my 20s, I would pull that thing out and I would read. And I mean, over and over and over again, it was a repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat type of process for me. And it's based on a premise. Other nations may do this, but you cannot. Other people around you may do this, but you are different. I have set you apart to reveal my glory. And there's a part of us that doesn't really like this, and there's another part that feels very complimented by such a statement. And yet, isn't it funny that it's the greatest honor we could ever receive, but we still sort of fight against it because we want to be normal? We have that sense of the world snubbing us, the world looking at us going, ha! We're like, hey, I, I, I'm someone important too. We want to be liked by the world. And we make a choice between honoring our God and oftentimes honoring this world. We fear the opinions of men instead of God. So listen to this, and you'll start to unpack the Old Testament real quick. Others, other kings may number their armies and place their confidence in the strength of men. But you, O kings of Israel and Judah, cannot. 
Other kings may take multiple wives unto themselves, but you cannot. Other kings may yearn for more territory, more power, more riches, but you cannot. What are the kings of Israel limited to? What God gave them. Are you satisfied with what God has entrusted you, or are you going to crave and covet your neighbor's goods? You are not like other kings. You have been given territory, and what God gives you, you take. But don't covet what someone else has. Other kings appease the gods just in case they really are real, but you can only appease one god. You can put no other gods before God. You cannot try and appease other gods just in case. Because if you have famine, you know, there's a God for that. If you're having trouble you know, having uh, children, there's a God for that. You know, there, if, if there's war coming against you, there's a God that you sacrifice to, and maybe it will help. There's only one God that can help you in all these things. Do you know that, O king of Israel, O king of Judah? Do you know that, O Christian, that there is only one means of salvation? Don't turn elsewhere. There is a way that you are supposed to rule your life, and it's actually prescribed. David is modeled something. There's a way that he walked, and there's a way that you are supposed to walk. So here's G.D. Watson. G.D. Watson is going to start out this right, and this is what I had folded up in my Bible. G.D. Watson is going to start this out with a scripture. So that's, that's how it's going to start in Matthew 16. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So here it is. If God has called you to be really like Jesus, he will draw you into a life of crucifixion and humility. God's call will put such demands of obedience on you that you will not be able to follow other people or measure yourself by other Christians. At times, he will let other people do things which he will not let you do. Other Christians who seem very religious will push themselves, pull wires and work schemes to carry out their plans. You cannot. And if you attempt it, you will meet with failure and rebuke from the Lord. Others may boast of themselves, of their work, of their successes, but the Holy Spirit will not allow you to do any such thing. And if you begin it, he will lead you to despise yourself and all your good works. Others may be allowed to succeed in making money or may have a legacy left to them, but it is likely God will keep you poor. <laughs> I didn't really like that line when I was growing up, but it was very, very important for me to wrestle with. Am I willing to live an otherly life? God wants you to have something far better than gold, namely a helpless dependence upon him, that he may demonstrate his faithful love for you in supplying your needs day by day. God may let others be honored and put forward and keep you hidden in obscurity in order to produce some fragrant fruit for his coming glory, which can only be produced in the shade. He may let others be great, but keep you small. He may let others do a work for him and get credit for it now. The reward of your work is held in the hands of Jesus and you will not see it until he comes. The Holy Spirit will put a strict watch over you with a jealous love. He will rebuke you for the little words and the feelings or for wasting your time. So make up your mind that God is an infinite sovereign and has the right to do as he pleases with his own. He does not owe you an explanation of these mysteries, but if you give yourself to be his child, he will wrap you up in a jealous love and give you the precious blessings for those who belong, heart, and soul to him. Settle it forever, then, that you are to deal directly with the Holy Spirit. 
It is his option to tie your tongue or chain your hand or close your eyes in ways that he does not seem to use with others. And when you are so possessed by the living God that your heart delights over this peculiar, personal, private, jealous guardianship and management of the Holy Spirit over your life, you will have found the vestibule of heaven. So then I had to look up vestibule because I was like, what in the world is that? That's like the entranceway into the grand ballroom. That is the entrance into his presence. You want to come into that grand throne room? This is the door. The two cups. So in scripture, you're going to see two cups. Remember, Jesus, even at the table, is going to set a cup before his disciples. There's a cup of grace. If you drink it, you are blessed. There's a cup of wrath. If you drink of it, you are cursed. And in a strange way, there are two cups set before us. And each king or each one of us that is set over a territory under the authority of Jesus has to constantly make a decision of which cup we're drinking. And when we choose to walk in disobedience, we are drinking of the cup of wrath. And what you're going to see throughout the Old Testament is the kings will drink of that cup. And there is an immediate consequence that is going to come upon not just them, but their nation. As a father, the way I walk impacts my marriage and it impacts my children, and it impacts my church. It's not just impacting me. I am responsible for how I tend to this territory. David is going to sin, and the child of Bathsheba, the first one, is going to die. It's a direct result of David's sin. He is going to drink from the wrong cup for his own pleasure, and it's like poison to not just his own life, but his child. And it's very, very important to recognize that the decisions we make impact not just ourselves, but the world around us. So just think, if you drink of the cup of grace, then actually that brings grace to those around you. It's a principle of rulership, of leadership, that the decisions you are making in leadership have a direct impact and results upon those around you. I still remember Hudson playing, he was like two, and he's playing at this uh, table, and he has these like uh, railroad cars, you know, the magnetic ones, and he couldn't get one. He had them backwards, so it was like they were repelling each other. He's like, and he got so mad at those things, and I saw him do this, and I thought, wow, I hide it better than he does, but he got that straight from daddy, because I was struggling with extreme frustration, and I felt exactly what he was demonstrating. I recognized, it's like, as I allowed that into my life. It flowed right into his. So the one who's drinking from the grace cup, we'll call him the king of grace. In Alfred's story, this is going to be called the ring giver. I'm not going to unpack that today, but the king is known as the ring giver in the Middle Ages because he is entrusted with a territory. How he handles that territory is very, very important. So let me give you at least an introduction to it. I think you'll find it fascinating. The ring giver. So you have lands, O king. Share that land with your thanes. Now, you're looking at a word that it looks very strange. T-H-E-G-N-S. A thane. Now, if you've ever heard someone named thane, you'll understand why. Now, it's usually not spelled that way. T-H-A-N-E would be how you might have heard someone spell it or seen someone spell it. But this is such a powerful word. And the king has his thanes. And so when he is given land, the proof of a good king is he doesn't just claim it for himself, but he recognizes he was given this strength so that he could give it, so that he could share it. So if he has land, he shares that land with his thanes. You have wealth, O king. Well, share that wealth with your thanes. 
You have happiness. Share that happiness with your thanes. You have victory and spoil. Share that victory and spoil with your thanes. You have strength. Share that power, that strength with your thanes. Now listen to the opposite side of it too. You have need. Share that need with your thanes. You have enemies. Share those enemies with your thanes. You have a battle. Share that battle with your thanes. Who goes into war right with the king? Back then, the king didn't sit on a throne and tell his soldiers to go out and fight. You know that he was right there in the front holding a shield in the shield wall. And he was surrounded by who? His thanes. They shared in the battle with him. They shared in the success with him. They lived life with him. The intimacy of a king with his thanes is so touching and moving when I study this. It's like, wow. Because our thought of a king is on a throne and then his people work out there and do their thing as opposed to one that actually goes in and hangs out in the mead hall with them late into the night and loves them and hands them each rings, gives them land. And then they, as a response of covenant, say, and I will be loyal to you. And they share together in the ups and downs of the nation. Whatever that king is responsible for, they say, I'm responsible for too. Wow. So a thane, the king's trusted ones, those closest to him that share in his kingdom's strength and preserve it from all that would attempt to steal that strength. Thane is the noble's title, also thane or thane in Shakespearean English. The term comes from the old English bane, servant, attendant, retainer. In Anglo-Saxon England, it was commonly applied to aristocratic retainers of a king or senior nobleman. You're a landholder. Why? Because the king entrusted you with land. He entrusted you with wealth so that you would share in his strength. You're one of his closest. He can trust you. You have an oath between each other. He will, your king will care for you, and you'll care for your king. All right, I like that, guys. That's pretty stirring. So we'll finish with this. Dr. Benjamin Merkel is going to say, Ethelwolf, remember him? He's the dad of uh, Alfred. Then went out and threw gold and silver coins to the crowds. This scene, Alfred was, I think, four years old at this time. This scene, the image of a king as a munificent gift giver, became a foundational picture for Alfred of what true royalty looked like. It confirmed everything he had heard in the poetry of his native tongue about the importance of being a generous lord, a ring giver, as the poems would describe the legendary masters of old. We have a responsibility. We may not be kings of Wessex, but the king of kings has moved in and made us his castle. And he has entrusted us as his thane with this territory. And he says, we have enemies that are coming against this castle. Will you stand with me in resisting them? We have other nations around us or other influences and idols around us that want to influence and come in and take control of this territory. Will you stand with me, Thane, to repel these and to not allow this into this holy chamber? Yes, Lord, I will stand with you in your purposes. Father, this is unto you, and we submit these domains, these bodies of ours, unto our king. And we ask that you would train us in the behavior of royalty. Lord, that we would know how to be princes and princesses in your kingdom and how to rule well what you've entrusted us. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.